my mom said, Larisha, you're dividing Christianity. Do you know what you're doing? And I said, Mom, that was already happening. My body just happens to be in that liminal space. Literally, my body right now is in the middle of all of this stuff that was going down anyway. Maybe it's accelerated it. Maybe the church's grievances, prejudices, whatever, they're all out on the table. Yeah, it was a very fraught space. It still is. This modern world is of particular interest to women. Betwixt, at the intersection of faith and culture. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to the Betwixt podcast. I'm Deb Gregory. Today, we're talking about solidarity. Philosopher Kurt Beiertz calls solidarity a difficult concept in our age of ethics and political philosophy. This is because our primary goal is to ward off dangers to the individual. Our political and ethical systems are designed to justify and defend individual rights and freedoms. But solidarity, on the other hand, is based on mutual attachments between people who seek a common ground and are willing to aid and protect one another. Solidarity is the readiness to face dangers and sacrifices on behalf of the vulnerable. And all of this is grounded upon a communal rather than individual-based ethic. For Christians, solidarity stems from the belief that all humans are made in the image of God, and we share a bond of kinship, equal value, and mutual obligation toward one another. This point of view compels many Christians to action by aiding and defending the vulnerable and by opposing institutions and systems of injustice. This action requires a willingness to share the risks and burdens of others along the way. Byrds holds all this intention as he describes solidarity as a bridge spanning the chasm between what is and what ought to be. My guest today is a political scientist who not only researches solidarity, but has used her own feet to step out upon the bridge of solidarity. And there she encountered the mutual attachment and common ground that blossomed in that space. But she also experienced the full force of the storms that rage around contentious theological and political issues. In 2013, Dr. Larisha Hawkins was the first African-American woman to become a tenured professor at Wheaton College in Illinois. Wheaton is a Christian college founded by abolitionists in 1860. And today, Wheaton is a top-ranking liberal arts college known for its rich history, deep faith, and quality education. Wheaton President Phil Riken once said that what happens at Wheaton shapes what the evangelical church is like in the United States. And because of that, Wheaton becomes contested ground for what the evangelical church should be. In December 2015, Dr. Larisha Hawkins stepped onto that contested ground with a Facebook post that hailed a global storm of controversy. What did she post? It was a photograph of herself wearing a hijab, a Muslim head covering, along with a written commitment to wear that hijab throughout the Christian season of Lent. This was an act of solidarity with Muslim women. 
As Dr. Hawkins stepped out onto that bridge of solidarity, her seven-paragraph posts, which you can Google for yourself, kicked up the winds of contestation that swirl around evangelical identity-shaping institutions like Wheaton. Her primary message was quickly lost in a torrent of controversy that whipped up around other issues skimmed off her Facebook post. Debates erupted over hijab-wearing protocol by non-Muslims, interfaith relations, Islamophobia, race and gender discrimination, academic freedom, politics, Trinitarian theology, libertarian theology, and yes, even human origins. All of that and more kicked up from one post. Wheaton Anthropology professor Brian Howell described the situation as, quote, something of a Rorschach test for those wondering about the state of Wheaton College, evangelicalism, and even U.S. Christianity, end quote. One phrase in particular quickly polarized camps within the evangelical world. Hawkins says, quote, I stand in religious solidarity with Muslims because they, like me, a Christian, are people of the book, and as Pope Francis stated last week, we worship the same God, end quote. Dr. Hawkins was placed on administrative leave as the college tried to determine whether her beliefs were in conflict with the school statement of faith. Meanwhile, the voices of Wheaton faculty, parents, alumni, evangelical elites, Muslim allies, national and international media all escalated to a fever pitch. In the end, Dr. Hawkins and Wheaton College reached an agreement to part ways. Now, you may agree with Dr. Hawkins on some issues and disagree with her on others, but in this episode, I'm not really going to ask you to pick a side on any of the stormy issues. My quest is to explore the concept of solidarity. And my invitation to you is to listen to the story of a woman who stepped out onto the bridge of solidarity in the midst of a theopolitical storm. Hi. Hello. Dr. Hawkins is now a faculty fellow at the Institute of Advanced Studies and Culture at the University of Virginia. Tell me a little bit about your background. What brought you to this place of life? I grew up in Oklahoma City. And then when I was 10 years old, we moved to a city called Shawnee. My grandfather was a pastor um, in Oklahoma City called New Bethel Baptist Church. That was formative. And when I was 11, I was baptized. My grandfather baptized me, and then he passed away two days later. Oh, wow. So it was a double whammy, but also at the same time, like seeing the joy on his face when he saw me, you know, walk down the aisle and make a profession of faith. I think for him, it was a form of solidarity, right? Um, Mm. That's on our spiritual journeys that he knew about when he passed away. So it's one of those turning points in my life. Hmm. I think a significant thing was going from a black church world to Shawnee was a predominantly white place that we lived. The school that my sisters and I went to was all white and Native American. The church that I went to was predominantly white, except for us. But I was being ushered into an evangelical world. And then when I went to college, I wanted to continue on my spiritual journey in an intentional way. Hmm. And so I started looking at Christian groups on campus, and fairly quickly I was invited to attend 
Campus Crusade for Christ, now called Crew. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of my childhood up through college. And at that time, was the topic of solidarity even really on your radar that much? No. But in lots of ways, my dad modeled and my mom going out of our way to include people who are left out and privileging those people. But I mean, modeled in small ways like We had some neighbors, single mom, two kids, and it was the only person on the block who was from a divorced family. I remember my dad going fishing one day and I said, Dad, we want to come. And he said, no, I'm just going to take this one little boy by himself because, you know, he doesn't get to spend time with his dad. My dad totally does not remember this. I told this story (laughs) at his retirement party about things that I learned from him. But it's just he does it axiomatically, just part of who he is. So he's like basically kind of multiplying solidarity and presence. Hmm, That's wonderful. So those early lessons about solidarity or walking with people. That sounds so formative. Mm -hmm. Just beautiful. Um, Well, tell me how you got to Wheaton. So um, I should say that I studied the confluence of race, ethnicity, religion, and politics in the post-9-11 world, right? Well, there's a liminal topic right there. Right? (laughs) And so part of the the fit issue at Wheaton is since Wheaton's a, a Christian school with a kind of evangelical impulse, you have to be able to assent to a particular statement of faith as someone from a black church background and who, you know, was in college and involved in this evangelical group, um, you know, my Christian commitments do line up with the statement of faith at Wheaton. What I liked about Wheaton was having been very involved in crew at Rice. I was a Bible study leader. I knew that college is just such an impressionable time in life. I mean, I just think that the opportunity to be with college students who are eager to get to know their professors was something that seemed compelling to me, not just to be the professor in the classroom, but to be a mentor outside the classroom. Hmm, That's wonderful. Let's talk about solidarity. This is something I'm really intrigued by, Mm -hmm. especially your take on embodied solidarity. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Yeah. I started thinking about bodies a lot when I was at Wheaton. One of the the things I noticed almost immediately was there are these lovely 18 to 22-year-olds who are so focused on developing their minds and the spirit that they forget about the body. And so I began to think through what does it look like to actually provide a vision for them of the fact that bodies matter part because at Wheaton, we we talk about developing the whole person. I wasn't interested in developing students who were parts. And so I also think that it's one of the great heresies that the body doesn't matter, like old church heresies. And so I think it has ramifications for other things, how we think about sex and sexuality within Christianity, how we think about gender, how we think about politics. And so one of the things that became very apparent to me early on, being a black woman in a very white evangelical context, the really important phrase, our bodies do work for us. I can walk in a room and say nothing and people have sized me up based on my race and my gender 
um, what they perceive my sexuality to be. I mean, these weird things, right, that all have to do with our bodies. And so trying to help students understand, in the words of Aristotle, that, yeah, we're political animals, but our bodies are sites of political contestation. It's not just a black woman's body does work for her. All of our bodies do this kind of speaking on our behalf is what I mean when I say do work for us. And politics, it's all about contestation. When certain bodies appear in the public square to speak on their own behalf, sometimes their voices are systematically excluded and or drowned out. Mm -hmm. So I come back to this theme of the body and bodies all the time. As a Christian, thinking about the body of Christ, it's a really natural metaphor to think through with my students. That message, I guess, became more and more amplified over time, and especially after Ferguson. Hmm. I think Ferguson was a turning point for me in not in necessarily how I taught, but what it looks like to do solidarity. I would tell my students, it can't happen from afar. And so the quest in my pedagogy, like my teaching philosophy became... How do I get my students not to think about injustice as out there? What does it mean to be an embodied question mark wherever you go on your journey? Always speaking truth to power, always calling to task the powers that be where necessary in order to amplify, not speak for the voices of the most vulnerable and the oppressed mm -hmm. and or to walk with them mm -hmm. um, just to learn from. Because that's the most important thing in my mind and my estimation. Hmm. My church was in a neighborhood that where extreme poverty was between 20 and 30 percent, not just poverty, extreme poverty. A kid who left a gang and peril to himself and his family, right? He leaves a gang and he said one night, how do you love your enemy when your enemy literally has a gun to your head? That's the kind of question that you can only hear if you put yourself in a position to learn from mm -hmm. that is possessed. Yeah. It's only by being close in proximity. And I just think in the Gospels that I read, that's what Jesus did. Jesus, He blessed them. He came near. He healed when asked. Where Jesus went, societies and politics were changed. They were at least upset because His body was doing this incredible work of daring to see people in their misery. Hmm. Jesus wasn't just this ethereal being who only walked on water, but the most miraculous thing I think Jesus did was to dare to walk with people in their distress and their oppression. And that's what embodied solidarity is to me. Yeah. And that was always the goal, to get my students to go from being these people in the classroom sitting on our butts, talking about the oppression out there, and being paralyzed by our privilege mm -hmm. and thinking, oh, I can't change everything, so I'll do nothing. Mm -hmm. I would always tell my students, if the only thing you learn from me is to see people created in God's image, that's enough. There's a, a Korean-American theologian, Sang-hyung Lee, and mm -hmm. he talks about um, solidarity in this way. He says, it requires a crossing of a boundary and entering a liminal space, the yeah. space between our own favored perspective and opening ourselves to the perspectives of others. Mm. And this is the liminal space of solidarity. And then you talk about that being like this theopolitical space of mm -hmm. disruption. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about the risks and dangers, mm. even in your own experience? Like when yeah. you took that step to put that post up on Facebook, you opened up... <laughs> like a cornucopia 
of issues that really seem to threaten a lot of people in various theopolitical spaces. And it was like you stepped into this liminal space that was full of almost taboo. What was that like for you to walk into kind of that danger zone? Yeah, it was a very fraught space. It still is. Um, I always think of something my mom said. She said, Larisha, you're dividing Christianity. Do you know what you're doing? And I said, Mom, I'm not doing that. That was already happening. My body just happens to be in that liminal space. The way I thought about it is literally my body right now is in the middle of all of this stuff that was going down anyway. Maybe it's accelerated it. Maybe the church's grievances, prejudices, whatever, they're all out on the table. Wearing the hijab was specifically geared at that political moment where Trump had just said, Muslims hate us. Jerry Falwell Jr. had said in chapel at Liberty University, let's end those Muslims before they end us, meaning take gun classes on campus. And if one walks in here, you know, they'll get a lesson, right? because I have a gun in my back pocket right now, and that was in the wake of San Bernardino shootings. So when I stepped into that liminal space, if you will, that was fraught space. I think liminal spaces are always fraught. They're often disorienting. Obviously what's beautiful about them is that they're rife with potentialities and possibilities, but they're always precarious. All I know is it wasn't something that I did on purpose. I mean, I did the Facebook post on purpose. I was writing it in a way so as to invite people into standing in embodied solidarity with Muslim women in particular, just because they're the visible targets. The initial idea was sparked by a student of mine to wear the hijab, you know, as a one-shot thing on the airplane home. And I just decided to make it an Advent commitment. I don't know why it sparked that kind of a response, you know? I was like, well, if I had known the Facebook post would go viral, I would have put on makeup and taken a better selfie, of course, right? And certainly there was no sense that it was going to provoke particular facets of the religious community in ways that it did. And I just say religious community because I don't just mean Christians per se. Mm-hmm. It was a larger conversation that happened from that, right? Yeah. And I mean, it was an international conversation. It was a national conversation. And it's an ongoing conversation. And I wouldn't change that fraught moment. And I would say that I'm still in this liminal space. On the other side of Wheaton, not being in a tenure-track job, I'm a lecturer. I'm not on tenure-track. But it was a moment that I have no regrets about, that I wouldn't change. And we need to continue to press into difficult conversations that hopefully end with us emphasizing our embodied solidarity, even where we disagree about various issues from religion to politics. What does it look like to love our neighbor as ourselves? What does it mean to be our brothers and sisters keeper? I mean, at the core, I feel like it's very tragic that the the Christian community can be so divided on things that I feel like are so central to our faith. Mm-hmm. You know, when I when I brought up this idea of embodied solidarity to my husband, you know, I was just reflecting on, okay, when have I lived this in my life? And immediately I remembered that when he was in grad school, 
he was really concerned about homelessness. He was learning about it. And so he gave up his possessions for a period of time and moved into Hmm. a homeless shelter. (laughs) Wow. And I asked him, you know, was that embodied solidarity for you? And he said, I don't really know what that means. But for me, it was about learning incarnational living. Mm -hmm. And he felt like that was the thing where growth was going to happen in his spiritual life. Mm. And I think that that's so core to the Christian value of this incarnational living. This year I read a book by uh, Catholic theologian M. Sean Copeland. It's called In Fleshing Mm -hmm. Freedom. Yeah. She says, talking about the embodiment of Christ, and she says, His revelation directs us to bodies, particularly to bodies of the exploited, despised, the poor, those who have been overdetermined in their flesh. I mean, that's what you're talking about, right? This um, yeah. this call isn't just some political rhetoric specifically. It is Christian rhetoric. Yeah. What does this potentiality for change look like in your uh, imagination? Well, in my imagination, I think it's a radical call. When Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, I think people think of a pocket cross. And I think that cross is very bloody. I see Jesus carrying his cross. I see a very bloody cross. And so when we look at cross bearers in history, whether Gandhi or MLK or Mandela, uh, Mother Teresa, there's a steep price to pay for embodying solidarity. And I mention all those people because all of these people learned from going to the places where the oppressed lived. Um, and when we find ourselves in the midst of the oppressed, are we going to be radical enough in these mainstreamed places to do the radical thing? And so I was on the green line in Chicago one day on my way to a book club with my girlfriends on a Friday night. And the weather in Chicago changes at the drop of a dime. And it went from very warm to really chilly. Like between the time I walked from my house to the train, a kid gets on. And this woman on the train within two stops talks to him and she goes, where are you going? And he's in a kid that's getting off at one of the stops where crime is the highest in the city of Chicago. And she said, where's your jacket? And he said, I don't have one. And it's off her jacket um, and gives him her jacket. And um, I saw that and almost cried on the train because I was like, that's what it is. It's literally the Sermon on the Mount, you know, like it's in this small way. And I finally got up the courage to talk to her before I'm supposed to get off. And I said, I saw what you did. I know you didn't do it for people to applaud you because no one did. In my religion, and she starts shaking her head. I said, this is what I'm called to do. And she grabbed my hand and I said, thank you for doing that and for modeling for me in this moment. She didn't have to do that. She just saw a kid, and in her heart, she thought, he needs a jacket. And further than that, she thought, I know his story. I know where he's going. I know where he lives. I know where he's getting off. And she saw him, and she saw him in the way Jesus saw people. That's radical, sacrificial cross-bearing. And I just don't think we're convinced that that's what it takes. Speaking to Christians, I don't think Christians are gripped by the reality that every day it's life and death for the most vulnerable because they receive the brunt of our intransigence. It takes hard talk. So I'm happy to be the person who goes and tells people that God is calling us to account that we're the people that Isaiah talks to and says, 
Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves and judgment will come. And I mean, in the sense of the world is already crying out, like the earth is crying out and vulnerable bodies are crying out. And the question is, do we hear them? They're already judging us, right? If we don't have the eyes to see and the ears to hear, woe is us. And that's my message. Maybe it's a message of gloom. It's not a message of doom because as a Christian, I am eternally hopeful. It's annoying how hopeful I am. And I look at students every day and I'm hopeful that a generation sees injustice, however sexy social justice is to them or trendy organic cotton t-shirts they buy, they care. Let's honor one another in solidarity as we walk together. Different methods, different means, different political parties, different denominations, faith, no faith, embodied solidarity is a call for everyone. Walking in it may mean risking our lives, but it also takes little things like giving up your cloak or being willing to go and learn from the homeless what it is like to live in those conditions. That's my prayer for all my students. And so I say, go and choose life in those places. You will find life. You will find life abundant. Hmm. That is hopeful. Yeah, that is a very hopeful message. Well, I just really appreciate you, your courage and your journey, your willingness to, even though I'm sure you had no idea what you were jumping into, (laughs) to enter into that space and to invite others into that. Thank you. It's just been a joy to talk through the journey, what I'm thinking, and it's an ongoing process of healing and moving forward. And so thanks for being part of that process. I love the idea of Betwixt. It's beautiful, and I'm, I'm really glad that you're, you're sharing various stories of liminality. Thank you. It's been said that solidarity is the tenderness of the people. So it's not surprising that it's the tenderness of Laurisha Hawkins that has captivated me the most. She raises the banner of embodied solidarity with such a courage and tenacity and tenderness that's provoked me to examine my own life. How much tenderness and compassion do I feel toward others? Am I ready to make sacrifices or to be a cross-bearer on behalf of others? How am I using my body? my hands, my voice, my feet, to step out upon the stormy bridges and to walk with those who are crying out. I hope that this conversation will inspire questions and conversations of your own. For listening to this episode of the Betwixt Podcast. You can find more Betwixt episodes and view our show notes at betwixtpodcast.com or you can visit my partners at missioalliance.org. Missio Alliance is resourcing a church reimagined for a world recreated. Thank you to everyone who has subscribed and given Betwixt a positive review on iTunes or Google Play. If you haven't done that yet, please consider taking a minute to help me out. This really is the fuel of podcasts, and it makes a big difference. Special thanks to my friends Rivoli for sharing the music that you hear now. You can check them out at ryvoli.com 
or Facebook slash Rivoli. Hey, it has been a real pleasure to produce this podcast for you. Thank you for holding liminal space with me today. Catch you next time. Space